Hello friends, this is Arpitan Arjuna sharing inspirations from the Pathless Path in the Lobby Bob Awaken podcast. Enjoy listening. Hello everyone, this is our first Lobby Bob Awaken podcast episode. We are so excited and looking forward to be hopping on into this new adventure with you all, especially after such an incredible, beautiful repo in our social media around creating this podcast. And thank you all so much for all your beautiful suggestions and all the beautiful topics, really important, that uh, came out and uh, were shared on our social media. We've often been amazed how... When we talk about yoga and spirituality, one of the questions that keeps coming is really not so much about that, but about us. And it's understandable, of course. Before we listen to anybody, we'd like to know who is it that we're listening to. And so for those of you who don't know us at all, I guess we're going to cover a little bit our own story through the different forms of spirituality that have formed our path. And we also will share with you how that really unfolded for us, what that really entailed, and how, what our experience of that was. So this episode will basically cover a bit of background on the two of us, but also on the practices that we have found to be most useful and rewarding. My introduction to yoga came about 17 years ago in 03, when I was only in my late teens and a dear friend of mine introduced me to mantra chanting. I've been interested in other spiritual practices before and India has always been this mysterious land that holds so many treasures, but I never before actually engaged in practices coming from India in yoga, meditation, or chanting in this way. So my fascination really began with mantra, with bhakti yoga, with chanting with other people, and then expanded into hatha practice and pranayama practice, meditation practice a little later on, actually just a year later. And then in the beginning of my 20s, when I was already establishing my Satyananda practice, I've attended my first Vipassana meditation retreat. So at this point, I've actually been really wanting to sit a Vipassana retreat for for five years. And I'm glad I didn't do it earlier, that I didn't sit when I was 16 years old, because there were a lot of experiences that I needed to make beforehand. We have to understand this first Vipassana retreat was really the turning point in my life. It was the point when, while sitting this retreat and having the most profound experience I've ever had at this point of my life, it became crystal clear to me that all I want to do is sit with people in meditation, is share this practice in whatever way this comes. And this was a very new experience for me. I grew up having all these friends around me, having different dreams and wanting to become this or that when they grow up. And I've never had that. I never had that clear dream of what I want to become and what I want to do with my life. It was always perplexing to me. Wow, 
why does everyone have like a dream of becoming something? And I don't have any of that going on. So it was very profound and very putting my soul to ease experience to sit this meditation retreat and feel it in my body, feel it the entirety of my being that if there is one thing I want to do in this lifetime, if there is one dream that I want to realize is simply sitting with other people in awareness, in mindfulness, in meditation, striving to see things in this world, in our experience, clearly to see things exactly as they are. So this was really the turning point for me, which um, made me go really deep in Vipassana meditation practice for the next couple of years, and led to some explorations in Advaita, the non-dual tradition of India. And in this same time, kept alive my love for my traditional Hatha Yoga practice, which is present to this day. Well, for me, it was similar in some ways. I also started with Vipassana, right? I was also in my late teens, I guess I was 19 actually, and I set the 10 days in Goenkaji's tradition, just like Apita did. It was in 98 actually, and it changed everything. I remember not having any mm, paradigm really to even anticipate to expect anything in particular because before that spirituality really hadn't played much of a role there was a, a curiosity about well philosophy the meaning of life things like that but there hadn't been any practices there was no background my entire environment growing up was not providing any impulses examples even there was really uh, nothing at all before that retreat came to me through a friend who had met someone while hitchhiking. It was a, a serendipitous arrangement that led me to go. And we went, the two of us, my friend and I, uh, being a bit suspicious as well. So we actually uh, did a bit of a background check on the foundation, uh, not knowing what kind of you know cult we might get ourselves into if we don't take care. And it did, it did of course, check out and everything it was fantastic. Uh, having... Mm, a difficult time is maybe even an understatement because we really had no um, idea what we're getting ourselves into and if you haven't said those retreats they're really quite serious with some 10 hours of meditation per day and um, yoga being even discouraged because you're supposed to focus on the sitting practice that's uh, taught and uh, I remember specifically there was an older gentleman sitting in front of me and he must have been in his 60s with a beard and kind of a the bear type and uh, whenever I struggled with all the sitting and with the knees and the back and such I just looked at him for a moment and I was like wow if, if he can do it I can do it and that was really uh, such an inspiration throughout that afterwards I even went up to him and talked to him and it turns out that he was um, a business owner from some wealthy island uh, who had basically gotten to a point in his life where materially he had had everything. And uh, he even described to me, and I still remember that, how it got crazy enough that he he had 
some workers reinforce or change the wall of his house so that he could hear the sound of the ocean at just the right volume when he realized that it's all a bunch of garbage that is basically that he's wasting his life on things like that that constantly dangle that carrot of happiness in front of us and of course it could be anything right it could be a, a piece of chocolate or it could be uh, remodeling your house um, it could be a yacht it could be anything you dream of so these carrots that are constantly dangling in the outside in the physical that uh, will never really satisfy us truly that will always just be replaced by other carrots if we do reach them. And maybe you've made the experience, you know, that something that sounds so amazing and wonderful when you actually reach it, even though it might be great, of course, eventually it, it passes and it fades out and you have just some other desires coming up. So an experience for me was certainly that there is something about desires and about um, attachments, aversions, that uh, govern our actions, our decisions, our experiences. Uh, so this was just one of many profound insights of this first retreat. And of course, retreats, as you might know, are always about removing distractions and really coming to our own center. So that's what happened for me, for sure. And I set a number of those retreats um, since then, quite a number actually, um, and if you haven't set them, it might be interesting to know they, they're actually exactly the same retreat every time, no matter in which country you sit them and who the assistant teacher might be that sits up front, uh, because all the instructions are recorded. So it's standardized and you'd expect it's boring to take the second time the same retreat. Uh, little do we know, it's far from boring. It's basically the opposite and somehow it illustrates most wonderfully how our own changes and evolution uh, colors our experiences completely, much more than we would expect. So every time I took this retreat over years, I would have sworn it was different and there were things that I had never heard before and it was such a worthwhile experience every time that even after 20 years I still feel like yeah I would like to sit this same retreat again and it's similar with all retreats as they have this retreating effect of really removing what usually just dangles in front of us. And, and actually, there's still a lot of dangling going on because the mind constantly produces desires and things it wants and things it fears. And so that seems to be um, kind of what the patterns of our minds bring about. And seeing that early on really was informing for my path for what came after. Mm, so I looked everywhere, started traveling pretty soon, I tried everything I could get my hands on, I tried different forms of yoga and it didn't really click, uh, probably because most modern yoga isn't really something I resonate with. And uh, eventually, it took a while, uh, some um, Shivananda yoga came to me in the form of a teacher from Berlin even. So I was able to actually stay with this teacher for a while as I was studying uh, back in Berlin to be a naturopath. So that was a few years, the last few years that I actually lived there. 
and at the same time taking regular yoga classes of Shivananda style. And that was mm, laying the foundations. I started to understand how yoga is, of course, a meditation and the asanas are merely a preparation and a complementary practice for everything else. So yoga and meditation kind of integrated with each other, just in the way they originally were. Like when we say yoga in India, for instance, people would actually think of something like meditation, or they might think of something like chanting, uh, one or the other, but they don't usually think of uh, asana necessarily. So this has changed in the West, but I found that interrelation between the two um, pretty important and have always felt the need to really practice yoga asana as a meditation. And I think this is what makes a huge shift in many people's practice when we recognize that it is actually not a sport in any way. It has actually, it might have some similarities because people perceive certain sports also as a meditation. Think of long distance running, things like that. Um, but that's exactly the point. There is sports which have a physical benefit and there is meditation which is really coming from working on and refining the mind mostly. And they are not really separate because during meditation we sit of course with the body, but they have perhaps an emphasis. And this emphasis uh, may go one or the other way. For me it clearly was the meditative approach. And this is not to say that I was much of a monk. Actually, never really. I had enjoyed the retreats and saw the benefits, but it hadn't really occurred to me to become some kind of renunciant as uh, Buddhism teaches. I mean, ultimately, Vipassana is a Buddhist practice that uh, comes directly out of the monastic traditions. And while those are very helpful and important to understand, this didn't seem to be my most natural practice. Tantra is the opposite, is the other approach, which is not about retreating from the world, but really living spirituality in the world. And I found myself quite at home in that approach, wanting to integrate everyday life, uh, its challenges, its, its desires and aversions with spirituality. And uh, soon I found out that that's not an easy endeavor. I came across uh, various traditions, uh, books at first, and eventually um, certain schools, um, Osho, for instance, and also um, other tantric schools uh, during my travels, um, realizing quickly that there is many challenges in that and it's been it's been said that, that tantra is licking honey of a razor blade simply because it is so hard to deal with the confusions distractions temptations that everyday life brings along and so these challenges have led to a colorful path perhaps and tantra in this way is much more colorful this doesn't is not meant to advertise it. If if someone is is attracted by the renunciant and the the quiet monastic version, I'm really always happy for them because this is so much easier. It's just 
the majority of paths are like that because it works so well. I mean, removing all the distractions and challenges of everyday life is so rewarding. It's just so effective. And um, anyone who can do it, go ahead, do exactly that. For me, it's been more the retreat approach. So it's been amazing to just sit about once or twice per year a retreat somewhere. And it should be more often, right? It should really be um, intuitive, but more often than once or twice per year is definitely uh, a good idea. And after each of those retreats, the integration, the application of those insights is really the difficult bit, right? It's so easy to just fall back into whatever patterns have governed us. And I've definitely experienced that same thing coming out of a retreat of sitting hours per day and then feeling um, to take a break just for a few days is exactly what doesn't work, right? I found that it's very, very hard to maintain the practice after a retreat. Mm coming back in after a break, practicing on your own altogether without a group around you and a teacher to guide you. All of that is very difficult. And that's another aspect of what makes the tantric path so difficult. The conceptual aspect also is important. Now, we're not going to go into that too much today for this podcast. Um, as for my own journey I have kept traveling, I have kept practicing, studying with a number of teachers all around the world, and that has also given me quite a wide range of perspectives on the same subjects. And so that has become really one of the defining characteristics of how I see yoga and how I like to share yoga, that virtually anything, any aspect of it um, that we look at can be seen through uh, every color of lenses you like and can be explained in a million different ways and needs to be explained in many ways in order to make it understandable to others. So to become too set on one particular understanding has always been suspicious for me actually it is really difficult to come to the conclusion something is a certain way because sooner or later we will find that is not true or it doesn't make sense to someone it is just a limiting perspective so in this way the mind kind of opens for lack of a better word be it through studies or the practice itself, or even just traveling. At the same time, I find it really important to clarify that seeing something, seeing a practice, seeing a body of teaching and a wisdom tradition from different perspectives and being able to deliver that in different ways, depending on who is sitting across from you, is very important. And at the same time, I found it really crucial in my experience if I find a practice that works for me to stay with this practice. It is so common right now, especially in the Western paradigm, we have access to so much. We have access to such a diverse 
world of practices, of understandings. And I do see a lot of us just really shopping around in the new age supermarket of both digital and uh, physical space, going to a training after the training, a retreat after the retreat of different traditions, mixing different practices and just really searching and looking for this one that was really going to shift things right now in this moment. And it's just not going to work that way. So it is... There is a lot to be said about looking into our capacity to commit. And this plays out in different um, fields in our lives, right? So we can talk about that in reference to different aspects of life, our relationship to ourselves, others, and the world in large. And it also applies to our relationship to our spiritual practice or what we call our spiritual practice, our mindfulness practice, our capacity to commit to a path that actually works for us is incredibly important because this will really define how deep we are able to go in this practice. If we keep shopping around, if we keep trying to dig a well in 20 different places at the same time, well, we might not necessarily reach the depths that our hearts are longing for, that our souls are longing for. So I'm sharing this from experience and maybe that is why we started with such passionate sharing about Vipassana that actually kind of really took over a little too much space in today's episode. But the passion of this sharing and the fact that some 20... 15 years later or 10 years later, we keep sitting in this tradition shows that, well, we have found actually even originally a practice that worked and we held on to it over these decades. Even though we might have tried different things, we might have explored different narratives within the yoga tantric mindfulness scene so we can deliver pieces to other people with more understanding, with broader spectrum of wording and explanation and at the same time there is such preciousness in that original practice that literally ground shifted both our lives so many years ago and i'm saying this because it is so easy to find a practice that works incredibly for you that is really shaking your world turning your world upside down and inspiring you to change your life forever. And yet, after some time with this practice, we might still get distracted. We might still take the long route around being like, oh, but maybe if I had this new practice, oh, but look how fascinating that practice works for this friend of mine. Oh, but maybe I should include that, or maybe I should attend this retreat. And this is really just the mind, more than anything, that is craving some diversity that is craving distraction that is not necessarily supporting us in diving deeper to the core of training ourselves to seeing things as they truly are, but thinking that, oh, if I explore these 50 different practices, and you're very welcome to sit down and count how many practices you actually engage with, and uh, you might be surprised at the number. And so... The mind just just likes that distraction because the mind doesn't like 
to be tamed, right? The mind doesn't like us to be freed from the non-stopping cravings, from the non-stopping attachments and aversions that the mind generates as a structure, from this ongoing conditioning that is so, so strong. So there is all this theme of distraction. Oh, but only if I practice this, only if I sit with this teacher, only if I go to that retreat, oh, that would be amazingly beneficial for my practice. Well, in truth, holding on dearly to a precious practice that you have over years and years, it's really a very important part of spiritual life. So this is often a bit confusing for people, because on one hand, of course it makes sense to look around, and it does make sense to commit, but how to balance the two? And I guess we'll probably have a whole episode on the topic of balance, because this is just one of many examples of where we see that much more than an extreme of one or the other kind, we are finding ourselves in moments of balance, where we can really, and that's what I found for myself, walk the middle path, between too much of this or too little of that and to basically combine different approaches, different understandings. Someone said that it's actually a sign of spiritual progress to be able to reconcile paradoxes. I thought that was a good perspective, a good because otherwise it's really hard to describe that progress. It's treacherous um, to gain some knowledge, some understanding, you know, as we can from books or from listening to some podcasts. We might think, oh, now I know something and I can go and explain that to others. But that isn't really spiritual knowledge in the sense of, of jnana, of, of insight, of realization. It is really necessary to look at these aspects and ourselves from the inside, from the experience, which can only really come once we have contemplated perhaps the extremes, but then also the middle path and where we stand in relation to it, so that we can rest, really rest, in a, in a balanced situation. And so that comes back over and over and I have found that in most recent times that's really the the defining feature of what's going on that I'm drawn towards extremes perhaps because they kind of offer a goal right whenever we talk about goals that's actually an extreme of some kind while we are much more able to rest or to be at home and uh, I am when I'm at peace in a, in a balanced situation. And as you see, we intended for this episode to be all about our journey. And uh, of course, we could have shared uh, some more logistical, uh, down-to-earth details like 
and we spent so many years in India, and we did this kind of trainings, and then we built an ashram in Central America, and then we opened a sanctuary in Tuscany, and then we bring people to pilgrim through India, and then we do this, and all of this is part of the story, but it is not the most important part of the story. The most important part of the story organically came out as the narrative around our practice, right? Because this is really what has been guiding us for the last decades in what we've been manifesting in the world, in the trainings we hold, in the retreats we offer. And this is really the cornerstone of our lives. It is the practice, it is our inner journey that then we are able to eventually share with others. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find all our offerings at loveevolveawaken.com. Please feel welcome to be in touch with any questions or suggestions you may have. Om. Um.